The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to extend a special welcome to members of our armed forces who are joining us from remote locations around the world today, and also thank the Plain Tree Organization who hosted my visit this week in Chicago. Next week, I head out to Bentonville, Arkansas, and Columbus, Ohio to speak. So if you're wondering where when I'm going to be in your neighborhood, just visit our website at RebeccaCosta.com. They do a great job of keeping my schedule current there, and I'd love to have the opportunity to meet you. Today, we're going to step away from politics, pandemic viruses, and the economy to talk about the really big picture. In a few minutes, one of the most important scientists of our time, Dr. Edward O. Wilson, will be joining us to talk about a growing danger the mainstream media seems uh, fit to throw under the rug while the problem is still containable. How often do we wait until a threat is already upon us and and our options are limited? Well, here's another case in point, the mass eradication of biodiversity on the planet, along with the early signs of climate change, are having an undeniable impact on global instability and security. Wilson is here to help us connect the dots and to talk about his latest book just out this month titled The Meaning of Human Existence. But before Dr. Wilson joins us to discuss these topics and others, let me tell you a little about his background. Edward Osborne Wilson was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and he spent most of his childhood in the countryside around Mobile, Alabama, and the Washington, D.C. area. When Wilson was seven, he had a fishing accident, which caused him to lose the vision in his right eye. This left Wilson with acute near vision in his left eye, allowing him to examine even the most minuscule details of tiny insects. So began Wilson's fascination with butterflies, ants, and other small creatures. By age 13, Wilson was already rocking the world of biology. He discovered a non-native species of ant on the docks around Mobile, a discovery which later led to one of many scientific papers and revelations. Wilson went on to earn his undergraduate and master's degrees from the University of Alabama and doctorate from Harvard University. In 1975, Wilson published the book Sociobiology, The New Synthesis, a book which demonstrated the evolutionary mechanics behind modern social behavior. Not only is Wilson considered the father of sociobiology, he went on to become the world's leading expert on ants, discovering more new species than any other human being. So much so that in the back of the Harvard Museum of Natural History, you will find a room affectionately called the Ant Room, across from which Wilson continues his research and writing. But these are only two of Dr. Wilson's many achievements. Uh, He is widely accepted as the father of biodiversity and was the first to give meaning to the word consilience for the unification of human knowledge. He has been the recipient of two Pulitzer Prizes and has received more awards than any other living biologist in the world, prompting the formation of the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report legendary biologist, humanitarian, and author, Dr. Edward O. Wilson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wilson. Rebecca, thank you. You made me feel extra welcome. I'm glad at last to get together with you on the air. Uh, I certainly admired what you've been doing, and I also enjoyed being with you in our recent trip to uh, Montana to the uh, leading uh, museum of uh, computer 
science and now robotics. Well, that was quite a trip, and we certainly learned a lot about artificial intelligence on that visit, didn't we? Well, we had uh, six, I think it was, of the pioneers. Now, you were one of them. I mean, you received (laughs) the award along with them uh, for your contributions and communication. And uh, so I was pleased to join you there. Well, I I thank you for that honor and that award. And uh, it was a very humbling experience to be honored with those other uh, recipients. Now, uh, there's going to be some listeners today who are new to the concept of biodiversity. So I I thought we could open today's program by asking you to explain what biodiversity is and why we must pay attention to what's happening to biodiversity today. First, the definition. Biodiversity, short for biological diversity, uh, is the totality of all of the genetic ver- uh, variation at every level of biological organization from gene on up to ecosystem of any particular place, whether it's your backyard, uh, your uh, nearest state park, or whether it's the whole world. And there are three major levels to biodiversity that scientists study separately and also try to integrate in their understanding. And these start with the ecosystems, which everyone is familiar, Mm -hmm. uh, and um, those are the forest, the pond, uh, the blue water, uh, the coral reefs, uh, the mountain slopes of the Andes, and so on. And then we go down one step to the species that uh, compose the ecosystem, the living part of the environment. And then we drop to the final genetic code that prescribes the characteristics of each of these species in turn. And so the object of biodiversity studies uh, is to understand and map all of that in those three levels, uh, and then devise the best ways to save them for, for posterity. Now, as you know, the vast majority of news and media focus today seems to be about political unrest and economics, with not much attention uh, as a percentage being paid to the very basic physiological requirements of the human species and of the balance of that biodiversity on Earth. So, in your view, where did we go wrong? Well, somewhere between... Teddy Roosevelt and Henry David Thoreau, now, we just had our interest in the living part of the world start fading relative to the non-living. The world is going green, yeah, Uh, you know, um, faint green, um, pastel green, but the focus you may have noticed, the listener may have noticed, is on the non-living environment. We're all worked up now about um, the, um, you know, about pollution, about the running out of, of non-replaceable resources, about, of course, above all, climate change. But uh, we sort of lost our focus, our grip on uh, the living part of the world, biodiversity. And that means that we don't understand properly, we're not studying it nearly well enough to do much about it, uh, and we are losing this shield around us on the planet, the biosphere, uh, which is, well, it's razor thin when you look at it uh, from a space vehicle just off uh, into orbit, and uh, yet it contains all of that living matter organized over three and a half billion years um, into a fairly, you know, stable uh, system. Mm -hmm. And we are part of it. We're exquisitely adapted to that biosphere, that thin little layer. Uh, It's like a shield over us. We couldn't live more than a few minutes uh, in any uh, direction, particularly uh, into the sea or into the atmosphere, uh, beyond the very uh, narrow limits, and yet we treat it as though it's just something given. 
uh, like uh, the, the stones in a mountain that's going to be there forever. In fact, we're wiping it out. Yes, and I, I love your use of the word shield. It, it is almost like a, a protective um, uh, clothing, if you will, uh, and, uh, that, pr- that protects our ability to stay alive. Now, we're going to have to take our first break, but stay right where you are. When we come back, we're going to talk about Dr. Wilson's newest book, The Meaning of Human Existence. You're listening to The Costa Report. Biodiversity is the very fabric of our lives. It is everything around us, all of nature. But human impact is diminishing biodiversity at an alarming rate. And because of that, the intricate web of biodiversity is unraveling in ways we don't fully understand, and our world is becoming less resilient. That's why we are biodiversity advocates. We're the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. Guided by the greatest living naturalist, E.O. Wilson, we champion research and education that expands our understanding of biodiversity and informs worldwide conservation efforts. The E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation is building a movement of environmental stewards like you who share our sense of responsibility for the living world that is our home. Join us in our quest to protect biodiversity, the fabric of our lives. Visit eowilsonfoundation.org. We're fortunate to have Scott Caraccioli with us to explain how the process of making sparkling wines influences a winemaker's approach to making a Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah, it's really a driving factor in terms of style and really kind of making it a little bit more old world. Um, we use all French oak, which is the same thing that we use in our sparkling wines. So I would imagine that someone who's not making sparkling wines will take a totally different approach. Yeah, it's a matter of viewpoint when it comes down to when you have a French winemaker making bubbles, you end up with a leaner, more European style of wine. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars, where you have to spell it to drink it. There are 700,000 horses in California, and I'm wondering how they get around. Hello, Michael Olson here, RV Service Center, 2525 Mission, way up at the top of Santa Cruz with Rena Mills, the owner. Rena, how do they get around? They all get around in horse trailers. And yes, we service horse trailers here at RV Service Center. We do axles, we do leak repair, we do wiring, brake, we do insurance, we do it all. The number one neglect I see most often, Michael, are the axles. Axles need to be serviced every 5,000 miles or two years, and that keeps you rolling along smoothly and getting to your destination. What happens if you don't service the axles? You know those people you see alongside of the road waiting for AAA? That's what happens when you don't service the axles. We offer 20% discount to any members of the Santa Cruz Horsemen's Association. So if you've got a horse, trailer, bring it on down to RV Service Center. RV Service Center, way up at the top of Santa Cruz, 25 25 Mission, right off Highway 1, can't miss it. RV Service Center has been locally owned and operated since 1976. Hi, I'm Sam Quentin for Shirt Crafters, and I'm here with Shirt Crafters owner, Scott D. Gold. And Scott, what do you think sets Shirt Crafters apart? Well, Sam, it starts with our graphic design department. We can take any tired old logo and turn it into an eye-grabbing brand. Then we can make that logo stand out in the community by turning it into a full-size vehicle decal. Next, we put that logo on polos, hats, and t-shirts, and just about anything else you can think of for your employees and customers for promotional purposes. And that's how we brand your business with Shirt Crafters. Top quality design and printing, fast turnaround, and right on the price. Shirt Crafters is located at 111 Ingle Street in Santa Cruz, or go to shirtcrafters.com. You can give them a call at 831 831- 423-0537. That's Shirt Crafter at 831-423-0537. Welcome back to 
Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Dr. Edward O. Wilson, world-acclaimed biologist, father of sociobiology, biodiversity, consilience, and scientific humanism, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, teacher, and... Well, I better stop there or we're going to run out of time. Please. <laughs> uh, Dr. Wilson, recent reports indicate that we are losing species thousands of times faster than nature can create new ones. And many scientists argue that extinction is happening even faster than that because we haven't discovered all the species. So uh, there are many life forms we may be eradicating or have eradicated that we don't even know about. And uh, Stuart Pym from Duke University says, on average, uh, we should be losing a bird species about every 1,000 years, but uh, we've lost at least 150 that we know of in half that time. So what do you say to folks who say that mass extinctions have happened before, they'll happen again, and this, like climate change, is just a normal part of life on Earth? Well, uh, let me give you the figures. Uh, As best we can figure out, this is from the fossil record of groups that leave very good fossils uh, that allow us to measure the number of species uh, and um, estimate extinction and origination of new species. Well, uh, before humans came along, species were being created at somewhere between one new species every million years to there's no orders of magnitude. That's somewhere in the interval. One new species to uh, every, uh, every uh, ten, uh, one to ten million species a year. Mm-hmm. And since humans have come along, and at the present time, Stuart Pym is quite right to order of magnitude. It's about a thousand species, as best we can estimate, per million species per year. In other words, it's gone up at least a thousand times in order of magnitude, uh, and we know the causes of it. I mean, we, we, we have a detailed knowledge of how species go extinct. The problem in making an exact estimate, and maybe uh, calling it more urgently to people's attention, is the fact that we don't know most of the species. Right at the present time, after, what is it, 250 years of study that began back in the mid-18th century in the time of Linnaeus, uh, we have now discovered uh, at uh, almost exactly two million species and given them scientific names. The estimated number is somewhere around 10 million species. Uh, the closest estimate that's been made using pretty sound methods is actually between 8 and 9 million species out there. Two million known to science after all that time Six million, say, uh, that remain undiscovered. Why are they undiscovered? Because we stopped supporting that as a branch of science and turned almost exclusively to molecular biology and developmental biology and biomedicine uh, that uh, uh, we support lavishly, and, and, and the, that's certainly the thing to do. Uh, but in the course of that, our universities and our institutions, uh, our museums, have uh, simply turned away from exploring life life on Earth to the species level. So we don't know how bad the damage is. We have to rely for the whole thing. We have to rely on just a few groups like birds and butterflies to uh, estimate how how serious it is. And it is very serious. We are uh, if if it continues at the present rate. And that figure is just a point in a rising curve, that figure of 1,000 approximately species extinct a year. Uh, We will be out of species in a century. We'll be down to, at the end of the century, down to something like one-half of the species either extinct or right on the brink of extinction. Now, that brings us to your book, The Meaning of Human Existence. From a biologist's point of view, what is our purpose here on Earth? I mean, what is it that makes humankind special amongst all those 9 million species? Well, it's easy, and everybody knows the answer on the second part of your question. Uh, It's that uh, enormous brain, particularly that enormous uh, cerebrum uh, that uh, stores memory uh, and uh, 
gives us tremendous control over so much of nature. Uh, and uh, that's what also gives us that grotesque, globular head. It would be seen that way, I think. <laughs> the point of view of a gorilla or a wolf. At any rate, uh, that's the distinctive part. Culture is what distinguishes human beings. But in developing amazing technology and the capacity to accumulate and use knowledge, we did not leave behind or properly, uh, at least properly understand our instincts. And we are driven by them. Uh, we um, color our lives every minute that we're awake with them. And uh, the uh, result, I, th like, I think, can properly be called a dysfunctional species. We are a dysfunctional species. We just can't get things together. We keep having disasters, economic, uh, constant turmoil. And um, the reason is that we have uh, what I like to call paleolithic emotions. That is, emotions that evolved uh, hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago. Uh, we have medieval institutions to which we owe obeisance, and we have um, godlike technology. Now, when you bring those three things together, it's a pretty dangerous mix. And it's led some of my colleagues to say, well, maybe there isn't any life beyond the level of humans on other planets because maybe our kind of species just self-destructs. I don't believe that. Uh, but I do believe that the most important thing uh, we can achieve in the intellectual sphere right now, born out of our best efforts uh, in science and technology and the humanities, is a complete self-understanding. And we haven't even tried that. We've abandoned the big questions. Where does those species, where, where do we come from? Well, if we, want, if we think the biology uh, um, departments of universities and the research has been starved, think about the philosophy department. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to say something that will probably annoy a few people. Uh, a philosophy is just about dead. Yes. The, uh, it's, um, after... it's one of the greatest achievements of humans. Philosophy? Yes. Well, in the earlier centuries, yes. But uh, philosophy has really ceased to ask the big questions uh, for the most part. Uh, the last big effort to create a, a um, unified philosophy, you know, logical positivism, uh, didn't work out too well. And as a result, there's been a kind of a diaspora of philosophers, uh, which we can take up shortly. Uh, later on, I hear mm -hmm. the music. Yeah, yes, uh, we, we have to unfortunately take another break, but uh, stay right. right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Edward O. Wilson. You're listening to the Costa Report. holiday season is just around the corner and I want to share one of my favorite tips for being able to avoid that last minute dash to buy something that screams, I didn't put much thought into this. Now imagine a different scenario this year. Imagine the surprise on your loved one's face when they open the first page of the Watchman's Rattle and see a custom dedication in their name by the author. The best part is it's so easy. Just go to RebeccaCosta.com, do it right now, and click on the book cover and presto. In less than three minutes, you can request the inscription you want. So do it now. Go to RebeccaCosta.com, and this year, give an affordable, thoughtful gift that says, this is for you and only you. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Did you know by age 50, half of all men have an enlarged prostate? This means more urges to urinate, longer bathroom trips, waking at night to urinate, or issues with intimacy. 
If this sounds familiar, call us now because we're shipping free bottles of Super Beta Prostate to listeners of this station. Super Beta Prostate is a non-prescription formula guaranteed to reduce the symptoms of your enlarged prostate. It's yours free. Pay only shipping and handling. Just call 1-800-841-1768. In clinical trials, the ingredient in Super Beta Prostate was shown to reduce urges to urinate, improve bladder emptying, reduce waking at night to urinate, and improve quality of life. This Super Beta Prostate Free offer is for listeners of this station, but it won't last. Don't wait. Just call 1-800-841-1768. That's 1-800-841-1768. Call 1-800-841-1768. Hi, everyone. Dave Michaels here once again to invite you to this weekend's Big Longevity Sale. This Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. till 2 p.m., you'll have a chance to stock up on some of your favorite longevity items. We'll have free samples, hats, bumper stickers, and a raffle drawing for a free Healthy Start Pack. This weekend, be sure to stop by and pick up your OsteoFX, Liquid and Powder, Glucogel, Selenium, Z-Radical, SlenderFX, Ocean's Gold, VisionFX, BTT, Ultimate Daily, Dr. Wallach Books, and more. We even have the Liver Pure 30-Day Detox System. First come, first served due to limited supply, so be sure to get here early. This weekend, Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. is your chance to stop by KSCO Studios and pick up your favorite longevity items. And don't forget to register to win your free Healthy Start Pack. We're at 2300 Portola Drive in Santa Cruz. See you at the Big Longevity Sale right here at KSCO Studios this Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. You never know what you're going to hear on Battle of the Sexes. Which of the following would signal that the macadamia nuts are ripe on the tree? My God. Would signal. There's a little elf that jumps out because here's a sign. They're ripe. Yeah. They're ripe. You know, those Keebler elves yeah, think they do cookies. They really do nuts. That's their, that's their day job. So, so which of these are a signal? The nuts fall to the ground. The tree leaves turn purple or squirrels mating excessively in the tree. Which of those represent ripe macadamia nuts? You know your nuts are ripe when the leaves go purple. When they drop, when the nuts fall, they are good to go. Battle of the Sexes, weekdays at 6.35 a.m. on Good Morning Monterey Bay and KSCO AM 1080. Back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Dr. Edward O. Wilson. And before the break, you were making the point that we appear to have abandoned the study of a unifying philosophy, uh, something that seems to go hand in hand with our loss of interest in understanding man's true place in the in the complex living world. So, what do those tell us about where we are at this point in human history? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that I've uh, irritated some friends of mine by saying uh, philosophy has uh, declined so badly because uh, what it has become is, uh, in practice anyway, is uh, a field with heavy emphasis on theory, particularly uh, theories through the ages of the nature of mind and, and now uh, flourishes in a few areas like semantics, formal logic, um, and um, uh, the um, foundational work on uh, moral. But the big questions of philosophy remain and have been largely abandoned, and they're summed up in the questions, where did we come from? Who are we, or what are we? And where are we going? And I believe that at the present time, those have to be answered by science. I don't think that religion can ever do it. Uh, I don't think that uh, philosophy uh, is in a position to do it right away. Uh, But we're coming to um, a point in uh, our knowledge of the origin of humanity, you know, from paleontological evidence, uh, from DNA studies of our ancestry and so on, uh, and from ecology about human, early human adaptations, all of that, and uh, the uh, work that, that explosive 
uh, research and forward advance on understanding the human mind, uh, at least that's uh, and brain structure. And um, so I think we're going to answer those questions. And let me just conclude that I don't want to go on forever here. Uh, is I believe that every college student, maybe every high school student, should be presented with those three questions at the beginning as a, as a, um, a base of discussion. Uh, and uh, how you answer it can come from several, uh, many fields, several of which are critical. Every student should be asked in every college, where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? And I, uh, I don't, we don't have enough time for me to review the latest on just exactly how humanity originated on the uh, savannas of Africa, but we're beginning to get a pretty good picture. Yes, we are. Every every year we uncover new artifacts and new physical evidence that begins yeah, to fill in the blanks. That's right. We're, answering, we're beginning to get an answer on that question, and uh, we uh, then that leads pretty well to uh, uh, the humanities and to history to help answer the, uh, uh, the question, what are we and why? Uh, and then Having explored that enough, I think we would be in a better position to come to an agreement on just how we should arrive at a solution of our major problems and make some kind of a sensible projection of where we're going. Now, you have made the unusual point that what makes humankind special is the humanities and not necessarily science or technology. And yet when the person on the street thinks about human progress, we typically think of the invention of electricity or the discovery of the double helix, um, you know, uh, computers. Um, But you make the point that were extraterrestrials to arrive on Earth, um, there would be very little interest in, in our science because science is throughout the universe is not unique. Uh, it would be pretty universal and therefore common throughout the universe. And our understanding of it actually would look quite basic. But what they would really be interested in is is um, how we created music, uh, literature, art, um, uh, and those things that are really truly unique to uh, our species. Uh, well, thank you, Rebecca. You read the book. <laughs> I did. I, I've read all of your books many times. Uh, at least that chapter on uh, and the two chapters, uh, the New Enlightenment and the All Importance of Humanities. Now, obviously, what we are today, particularly in this explosive phase of uh, the digital revolution yes. of science and technology, uh, is something very special. And for any species anywhere in uh, the occupied universe, that would be uh, the seminal achievement of any species. And we're the only one to do it on this planet so far. Well, uh, it is true that um, at the same time that uh, while knowledge continues to grow, solid knowledge, testable, understandable, connected knowledge continues to grow, uh, and it will reach enormous uh, extent, uh, and it will be available in a very short time, a few keystrokes. In spite of that, it is also true that knowledge, uh, exploration, and discovery are going to decline. We're going to see a decline. We are seeing it now in the number of discoveries per investigator, uh, per year. And the evidence of this you can see in, by opening any scientific journal. Um, and you find that the number of investigators is growing more and more. There used to be one or three or five. Now it's common in most of the sciences, uh, particularly physical sciences, and most, uh, most of the biological sciences too, to see 10 investigators, 20, 100 uh, and it's much more expensive uh, to make really original discoveries in science. Uh, in other words, the rate per person, per investigator, is declining. And that means that eventually uh, it's going to taper on down. And now let's think about our alien neighbors, maybe a thousand light years off. 
uh, who've uh, also been following the same track, had the same breakthrough. They made this, uh, may have made this, it's easy, just by, uh, you know, for, uh, inferential statistics, to suppose that uh, most of them made it a million years ago, mm-hmm. or many, uh, 10 million years ago, or even 100 million years ago, given the uh, age of the galaxy. In other words, if there are other advanced civilizations, uh, they may have had a civilization, a scientific and technological civilization equivalent to ours 100 million years ago. That means that they're not going to be furiously inventing and discovering new things now. And if they visited us, and they wouldn't come down to Earth for reasons I explain in the book, mm-hmm. uh, there would be a biological train track. They'd have to destroy every microbe on Earth before they could uh, settle on this planet. But let's say they put robots down. Uh, they would find probably nothing new whatsoever about our science once they learned how to translate it. Uh, but what they would find endlessly variable and endlessly fascinating is what we did when we developed a mind uh, that was creative in the manner of creating the uh, uh, the humanities and in particular the creative arts. Mm-hmm. Because those would not necessarily follow the same course as the aliens they, followed in terms of discovering so, uh, scientific think, principles in the physical universe. Yeah, that's exactly right. It would be different on in every... Uh, intelligent civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. My my son often makes the point that he believes that um, any discovery of life on other planets will be uh, far more advanced than us because he says, "Mom, you know, we've broken down the human genome and we have less than a five percent difference from a bonobo monkey." And he says, and it's not like we're all fascinated with, you know, bonobo monkey culture and want to learn something from bonobos. So he said, if they if they are even more five percent di- uh, further down the line than us, uh, we won't be very interesting. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm I'm kind of counting on that. <laughs> I don't mind not being very interesting to uh, other life forms, but hopefully we yeah, can learn well, something uh, from them. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but I don't agree with him, and uh, that's why I say we should ask those questions to uh, each student in turn. We, we absolutely should. Now, we're going to take our final break, but stay right where you are. Uh, we'll be back to find out where humankind may be headed as robots and artificial intelligence become a reality. You're listening to the Costa Report. Biodiversity is the very fabric of our lives. It is everything around us, all of nature. But human impact is diminishing biodiversity at an alarming rate. And because of that, the intricate web of biodiversity is unraveling in ways we don't fully understand. And our world is becoming less resilient. That's why we are biodiversity advocates. We're the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. Guided by the greatest living naturalist, E.O. Wilson, we champion research and education that expands our understanding of biodiversity and informs worldwide conservation efforts. The E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation is building a movement of environmental stewards like you who share our sense of responsibility for the living world that is our home. Join us in our quest to protect biodiversity, the fabric of our lives. Visit eowilsonfoundation.org. Big data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors, and mobile devices transmit it. Big data is arriving from multiple sources with ever-increasing velocity, volume, and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage, allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, you need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash bigdata today. That's www.ibm.com slash bigdata. Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, 
it may change your life. The term medicalization is so significant and relevant, it has its own Wikipedia entry. And nothing exemplifies the tendency for everyday behaviors to become medicalized than the world of psychiatry, where even ordinary, non-extreme behaviors can easily find themselves in the medical model's crosshairs. In fact, psychiatry's first order of business was to establish insanity as a genuine disease. Psychiatry was an invented medical practice that is a textbook case of medicalization. Diagnoses are oftentimes nothing more than late that reframe a dislike of authority and a desire to shop or indulge in habitual behaviors as illnesses and self-servingly assess whether those behaviors are in actuality extreme enough to require application of the tools of modern medicine. The result is the doctor and his diagnoses are the sole determinant of whether or not a depressed or otherwise mentally or emotionally disturbed patient is actually dealing with a disease. One of the problems with the medicalization of everyday life is the tendency for it to become oppressive. And, of course, there are the financial costs of involving the medical model in what can be considered everyday behaviors. Do we really need a doctor to help our children focus or to make sure we're happy? At which point does controlling ordinary aspects of body and being become more important than reversing real-life threatening diseases? When does the reach of the medical model become excessive and domineering? And most importantly, at which point does medicalization trump common sense and personal responsibility? Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm a pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos too at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and today my guest is Dr. Edward O. Wilson, who is making the point that science and new discoveries are beginning to slow down, as is evidenced by the many names you find on new research papers and the rate at which truly new discoveries are, are being made. Now, Dr. Wilson, um, you, you said that we've got Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And that pretty much sums up a lot of the consternation that we're experiencing this time in human history. Uh, all the data and the knowledge in the world are are not going to help us a lot if we continue to allow certain Paleolithic emotions and instincts to get in the way. Uh, everything from tribalism, hoarding, to violent tendencies. So... When you hear about technologies such as big data analytics and artificial intelligence and robotics and so on, does that make you feel hopeful that vital decisions will be increasingly relegated to machines who don't have the disadvantage of Paleolithic emotions? Well, I, it, it certainly does because um, it's actually what's happening now is that uh, with the aid of science generally and uh, with, uh, with the aid of uh, the um, capacity to analyze uh, immense amounts of data, we are really beginning to understand quite well, actually, where we came from. Now we're in the time, we're in an era where we can answer the question, we hope. Uh, it was a uh, kind of unification of the best of science, the best of humanities. What are we? And uh, with those, uh, with something like those answers, at least an openness to constantly improve our understanding of them, uh, we're in a better position to know what will happen and likely to happen in the future. And so um, that is why I would like to suggest a revival of the uh, philosophy uh, that uh, returns to the big questions and faces them squarely. And when we start dealing more intelligently, I think, with what the future holds for us, uh, then we, and, and we can manage to ask the right questions about the future and find answers that are close to workable, uh, then we will understand uh, why uh, stripping the Earth of its biodiversity shield which we are doing mindlessly, uh, is one of the greatest mistakes we could ever um, commit um, for all time to come. Because once that, is stripped, that shield is stripped away, 
once those millions of, or most of those millions of species are extinguished, many without our even knowing what they are, uh, we're going to be flying blind. We're going to be on a literal spaceship in which the atmosphere, the uh, purity of our water, the livability of our ocean uh, is going to um, depend upon us having the mastery to do it all ourselves. Whereas before, we were able to leave it uh, to this uh, tremendously powerful and balanced ecosystems of the world uh, that took uh, billions of years to evolve. So that's, base, that's a central argument. And the future is going to hold, I think, uh, a recognition that as of right now, 2014 was a time, it was getting late, that we have to do much more than we have been attempting uh, to achieve global biodiversity conservation. Well, it seems to me if robots, you know, that uh, were taking empirical data and able to analyze the trends, such as the rate at which species are becoming extinct, and uh, they didn't have paleolithic emotions driving their decisions, they would immediately make decisions to protect the the biodiversity of the Earth because uh, it would be the environment on which our species depends. So it seems like it's the paleolithic emotions that are the problem. Actually, that's right. And the um, uh, the robots are not going to be able to take care or run things uh, in, in any manner that makes sense. Uh, except by instructions we give them. And those instructions have to be very carefully crafted uh, by uh, our own self-understanding and what gives us peace and happiness and what gives us our instincts to survive and enjoy the environment. Otherwise, we pass along those paleolithic uh, emotions otherwise. in the form of software instructions, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we're just, we're just thrashing around. Now, uh, I believe... <laughs> Yeah, I believe that this could be uh, a major mission uh, for humanity as a whole uh, that's uh, an absolute win-win, which would be to resume or to reignite uh, the uh, studies of uh, the earth fauna and flora and down the microflora, all of the microbes, to know what we live, uh, what it is... uh, that we live with that created us, our species, and to adjust our behavior um, accordingly with the, with the help of that kind of information. Well, it, our very survival depends on this atmosphere that created us. Um, and, and, but there are uh, certain molecular biologists that believe that uh, there's no such thing as extinction that we'll be able to, at some point in time, take uh, d- the DNA found in fossils and recreate these species. What do you think about that? Uh, I think it's stupid. <laughs> That's well, what I, that, you know, d- d- well, please, please think. don't, please don't disguise how you really feel. <laughs> well, don't cut me off with a commercial right away. Oh, absolutely so not. Say a few more words. Um, maybe we can bring back uh, the Australian marsupial wolf. Maybe we can bring back the passenger pigeon. And maybe there are people who would just like to do that, but right now uh, it uh, would be no more than a circus trick. You bring back a couple of species where you're going to put them. I mean, the ecosystems are being changed so radically uh, that uh, we wouldn't know just which, where, what ecosystem to put them in. We may not have an environment to put them in. Well, that's my point. Mm. Uh, but the, uh, I think the, that what you should realize is that there are thousands of species that are on the brink of extinction or descending toward the brink of extinction and becoming extinct every year. Most of these are totally unknown to people. They're unknown, in many cases, to scientists. They're the heart and the guts of biodiversity that run the ecosystem. And we're letting those vanish. Are we really going to delude ourselves into uh, <laughs> believing that we can uh, oh, find a way to bring them all back enough to recreate our ecosystem? Well, I, I th- my father said that uh, there was a famous philosopher who said, uh, man is the rational animal. And I remember my father saying, oh, he was so close. 
He was so close to being right. I think what he meant to say was, man is the animal that rationalizes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, we have that. That's how, how we um, build the uh, confidence in ourselves to uh, face a, a very, uh, you know, chaotic and, and, and dangerous future. Yes, absolutely. Uh, before we before we run out of time, uh, where can listeners today go to learn more about your work and the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation? There, there's a website. Yes, yes, there is for the foundation, and the foundation itself is dedicated to education and promoting research uh, in the right places at the right time. For example. Uh, we are now advising the national park system in this country, and we're participating in uh, uh, a very serious program in the Gorongosa Park of Mozambique uh, to make them centers of science and education. So that's just one of many projects uh, that we hope to influence. As a and I do want our listeners to go to the site because the number of programs for children to inspire children and reconnect them with the natural environment are astounding and uh, and quite inspiring. Yes, well, thank you. We're trying to make it better and better. It, it, it's that. really wonderful. Unfortunately, that is all the time we've got left today. But before we say goodbye, I do want to thank you, Dr. Wilson, for being an inspiration to so many from so many walks of life, from technologists to business executives to students, ecologists, naturalists everywhere. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. Thank you very much, Rebecca. If your station is leaving us after this first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Edward O. Wilson today, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com. My guest next week was the first African-American woman to be elected to the U.S. Senate, Ms. Carol Mosley Braun. She calls herself a recovering politician, and next week we're going to find out why. Don't miss Carol Mosley Braun and an honest conversation about life before, during, and after the Senate and why sometimes a leader's most important work begins after they leave office. Join us again next week on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management.